A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is a bonus episode of Intercepted. For the past year of the Trump presidency, I think all of us have had this shared experience of an intense sort of political vertigo. And I I believe this situation is making us dumber by the day. Now, obviously, part of this is due to the fact that Donald Trump is president and he keeps outdoing himself every time you think that there's some scandal that's going to harm him. He then trumps it with yet another scandal, uh, even before we even can start discussing the previous one. It's really exhausting and brain melting. But everyone in media is sort of chasing the same rabbit. And in a way, all of us are complicit. And when we're constantly chasing the rabbit, or we're on the run, it becomes very difficult to take stock of what's actually happening. When you're just following the tick-tock of every day's breaking news, you can't really step back and say, How did we get to where we are today? We've all become sort of detached from our reality and in some cases, our own work. Having said that, uh, as I contemplated this year of uh, living with Trump, I thought it would be really fascinating to talk to David Harvey about this moment. Uh, David Harvey is one of the leading Marxist thinkers in the world. Uh, He's also an authority on Marx's Das Kapital, Uh, which turned 150 years old late last year. David Harvey is a distinguished professor of anthropology and geography at the City University of New York. He also pioneered the discipline of modern geography. And David has a new book out. It's called Marx, Capital, and the Madness of Economic Reason. David Harvey, welcome to this extended edition of Intercepted. Thank you. Let's um let, let's start with uh, just looking at where we are in this country right now with uh, Donald Trump uh, in power and these multiple investigations uh, uh, in Congress and with the special prosecutor going on into Russian collusion. I want to talk about some of that with you. Um, but first, I'm curious, having uh, now read uh, your book, how did we get Trump? And, and I ask that meaning from your vast research historically and into Marx and and economics and geography, what do you pin as the factors that led to Trump attaining power and and, and now residing in the White House? If I I had to simplify it, it it would be one word, alienation. That uh, you have a population that's increasingly alienated. It's alienated from its work process because there are not many meaningful jobs around. It's been promised a kind of a cornucopia of consumerism and they find a lot of products that don't really work. They find themselves having to renew their phone every now, you know, every two years. 
uh, you find them uh, having to live a lifestyle which is, uh, you know, they're disillusioned. And, and, of course, they're disillusioned with the political process. They realize that it's big money that buys it. Uh, they're disillusioned in lots of ways. And it's not only in this country. Uh, and you start to see a vast area of disillusioned population that is alienated from everything. Now, alienated populations don't necessarily behave in kind of a way that would probably make sense to somebody like me. They don't go to the left, for example. They just kind of say, give me something that looks different. And I think when Trump came along and said, I'm going to be your voice, uh, he actually, you know, completely trumped, if I can use that term, uh, Hillary Clinton. And I think the same thing you will see over the Brexit vote in Britain, where the metropolitan areas, which are doing okay, but you'll find alienated populations in those small towns where the basis of economic basis of life has just disappeared. And, and, yeah, and you'll find it in India and you'll find it. So you get this kind of uh, real rash of... Uh, uh, neo-fascist, populist, right-wing kind of uh, people who are coming along and saying, listen to me, listen to me, I have a different answer to all of these kinds of questions. And, and I think that that sort of thing is going on, not only in this country, but, but elsewhere. Do, do, you, um, do you believe that Trump has any ideology based on the actions that he's taken officially as president or the the ideas that he floats when he speaks or tweets? I think he has some ideas, whether it adds up to an ideology or not. I mean, for instance, one of his ideas is to dismantle everything that uh, Obama did. I mean, that's almost instinctual on his part, and to go in the completely opposite uh, direction. So he has ideas. An ideology, I, I don't think he has a, a clear uh, ideology, um, but he certainly has a persona who is, uh, you know, kind of it's about me, 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 and the narcissism is obvious. And I, I, but I think this is a classic uh, sort of situation of uh, populist leaders. What, what can you identify any historical analogs to this moment in the United States with Trump? I think I think at uh, at a certain point, if you were if you went back, probably in the nineteen twenties, you would find you know the rich were doing mightily well, but there was a clear kind of disillusionment uh, with what was going on in the country, and then that of course preceded what happened in the nineteen thirties. So I think I think there's always been a certain instability in in the United States. I don't think. Uh, uh, everybody likes to talk here about the tradition of democracy, but if you look at what happened in McCarthyism and and then uh, the kind of the, the the witch hunts back in the nineteen eighteen twenties uh, against the anarchists and so on, you'll see you'll see in the history of uh, of the United States uh, some rather nasty uh, kind of uh, right wing uh, uh, sort of populist uh, movements. Part of the reason I'm asking is is that I, I think that you, if you watch uh, cable news right now, which I don't recommend that you do, and you you listen to the uh, the pundits, uh, particularly Democrats or self-identified liberals, you would think that that Trump already is sort of one of history's greatest monsters. Um, and yet, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney killed conservatively over a million people right. in their wars. Right. They had essentially the same economic ideas as uh, as uh, Trump. Uh, maybe they were uh, a bit better at masking their racism or their bigotry. But I mean, is Trump truly the monster 
that he's portrayed to be relative to presidents past, both Democrat and Republican? Oh, absolutely not. But I think there's a, I think one of the things that's happened is there's been a sort of a retrogression, if you like. Uh, uh, but if you go back and look at the way in which, uh, you know, women were treated in the 1960s, you go back and you look at how race was being figured in the 1960s, you wouldn't say this was a, you know, a beautiful society at all, even though the economy was doing, you know, really rather well and a privileged sector of the working class was doing extremely well. But this is, uh, you know, in some ways, when you look at the situation today, I think it's far more progressive than it was back then. So I don't think uh, Trump is uh, somehow or other doing something that's not there in the roots of American American history. I mean, tr Trump's uh, a brand of what you know a lot of observers call his populism. Um, but but Trump's uh, Trump has multiple mantras that he sort of repeats and. His favorite when he talks about his successes is stock market keeps breaking uh, breaking records. People's right. 401ks are just going through the roof. He never mentions that the vast majority of workers in this country actually have no pension and right. are not participating in right. 401k plans. What what's What is going on right now on Wall Street and with the stock market? I mean, clearly it is breaking records. Trump is totally right. The Dow is above 25,000. I mean, it's it's nuts if you if you think about it. But what's happening on, on Wall Street? I think it's just a matter of that uh, since uh, the problems of 2007, 2008, what we've seen is essentially central banks uh, adding to the money supply. And the money has to go somewhere. And it mainly goes into the stock market. And of course, it mainly goes into the pockets of the top 1%. So actually, if you look at the indices of inequality since 2007, 2008, they've increased markedly, not only in the United States, but worldwide. And so in a sense, what you've done is you've, you've, you, you ran into a difficulty in 2007, 2008, and you answered it by throwing money at it, which has been great for the stock market and all the rest of it. But as we know, uh, the incomes of ordinary people have not improved at all. Uh, uh, people's situation hasn't, and hardly any of the benefits of the small recovery has been since 2007 and 2008 have gone to anybody other than the top 1%. Uh, and uh, that's, that's uh, I think, uh, and, and of course, uh, that is the, the, uh, that's the bondholder's solution to the economic problem. Uh, and uh, the last tax cut uh, was really a bondholder's charter. And the bondholders have controlled, actually, the whole kind of economic policy since the 1970s. So it's not only George Bush and so on. I mean, uh, that famous moment when Clinton came in and said, uh, can I do this and can I do that? And wrote Rubin from Goldman Sachs says, you can't do that. And basically, you've got to do what the bondholders tell you. And Clinton, who came in promising universal health care, gave us NAFTA, the reform of welfare, gave us uh, the end of the, the, the taking down of Glass-Steagall and all the rest of it. And, and actually set up the, the, the sort of housing financing that produced the crash of 2007, 2008. So, you know, this, this has been the case in the United States that, in fact, uh, the bondholders are, are creating an economy which is good for the bondholders. You know, I mean, uh, the, the, um, the, the Pope talks about uh, um, usury as, you know, that the stock market is entirely an institution of usury. And you write in your book, uh, the formation and circulation of interest-bearing capital is, in effect, the circulation of anti-value. Yes. Explain what you mean by that. I mean, basically, uh, debt is a, a claim on future labor. And when people are indebted, uh, they have to labor to pay off their debts. 
And we see this with students, for example, right now. Many of them come out and they've got this huge debt. And in a sense, their future is foreclosed. They've, they've got to pay off that debt before they can really have a life. And this is extremely, extremely difficult. That's why I call it anti-value, because it's not as if people have a, have a right to the value they're going to create. They have to actually create value in order to pay off the debt. So then for them, it's a, it's a negative uh, life that they're living as opposed to a positive life. And I, you know, and it's funny how and I think people understand that. I mean, just two days ago, I'm in a coffee shop in Baltimore which is one of my old stomping grounds. And, you know, just a few people hanging around talking, and there's, there's a couple there, and, and everybody's talking. You know, they're not on their cell phones, and they're not, you know, doing that kind of thing. They're actually talking, which is kind of one of the nice things about Baltimore. Still, people still talk to each other. Just for, uh, for some of the younger people listening, it's sort of like Snapchat, except you don't need a device, and you actually can use your vocal cords, and the other person uses their Absolutely. ears or other means Absolutely. of absorbing the information. Okay, got it. So suddenly... This this couple over there, and they're about there, they're maybe about 50 years old. And, and, and the guy suddenly says, you know, he said, I feel totally cheated. He said, I really believed in the American dream and getting a house and having a kids and, and, and a car and all this kind of stuff. And he says, here I am, 50 years old, he said, and all I am is up to my eyeballs in debt. He said, I feel really I've been sold a bill of goods and, and, and went on like this. And I, and, I, and I felt like saying, oh, you mean like debt peonage, like I write about, but I didn't dare do it because, you know, these, these were just ordinary folk. And, they, and everybody nodded and kind of said, yeah, no, we get it. We get it. If, if someone were to arrive here from like a different uh, universe and, and, and you were asked the question, what is the, uh, the, the wages that workers uh, are paid or the, the money that exists in the stock market or the money that uh, changes hands from we the people to companies like Amazon, what's it based on? What is that dollar? What is the dollar's actual value in our current economy? Well, the dollar should be uh, worth whatever it will buy, which is, uh, you know, the commodities and so on that people want. And we want useful commodities. And the trouble with that is that capitalism is very good at making commodities that don't work. Uh, or break down or only last at two years. I, I mean, I often use this example. I say, I'm using my grandmother's knives and forks. If, uh, cap if capital made things that lasted 100 years, uh, what would it do? Instead, it makes uh, phones, but uh, you've got to get the last, you know, the last, next one comes out and you have to change it every, you know, one or two years. Computers that uh, actually don't function if, if they're more than about three or four years old. So capital is starting to play this game of kind of having instantaneous turnovers of consumption because that's the only way it can sustain its market. Well, hello, gas and cars. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, there's absolutely no reason why we have to have vehicles on the road that are getting you know, 14 miles to the gallon. No, I mean, again, this is, this is uh, you know, one would like to think that capital was a, a rational system, but it's not. It's, it's irrational, it introduces these irrationalities because that's the only way it can reproduce itself. And I think, again, people are beginning to see that this is not exactly the good life that they thought they might have at some point down the line, particularly for the mass of the population now who are indebted or, and who have to pay off uh, that debt, would be it credit card debt or mortgage debt or consumer debt or, um, you know, car debt, uh, so on, so, or, or, you know. So this is, this is the world we're living in. We're living in a world of debt peonage in which most of the population is actually 
their future is foreclosed by the way in which the capital is wrapped around them. This kind of thing about the good life is borrow money and then everything will be okay. Well, and I want to get your um, your sense of where we're headed with uh, companies like Amazon, uh, Facebook, and and Google. It really does seem. Uh, that Amazon is, uh, just to use it as an example, is just swallowing wholesale uh, and, 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 and casting, uh, you know, spitting out the idea of brick and mortar stores or locally uh, owned businesses where workers are attached to the, to the labor and also the value of the, of, of the products. Um, but many Amazon workers, I was just reading this today, um, are being told by the company that they should apply for food stamps. Um, and this is happening in, in different places around the United States where uh, Amazon is building these huge uh, you know, processing plants. Um, what, what about the role of Amazon, Google, Facebook in our lives? I mean, is, is this something new in the evolution or devolution of capitalism? I don't think it's new. I just look at this historically. Um, we went through from the 1970s onwards with what we call deindustrialization, the loss of industrial jobs and the loss of manufacturing jobs. When I went to Baltimore in 1969, there was something like 27 or 30,000 people employed in the steel plant. By the time you get to 1990, there's about 2,000 people employed in the steel plant. And now there's no steel plant at all. So we lost manufacturing jobs bit by bit by bit. And the result was that the, you know, the unions, which are very strong, they, everything gets lost. So deindustrialization of the manufacturing sector was one big thing. Now we're seeing the same thing happening in retail and marketing. We're seeing it through Walmart. We're seeing it through Amazon. We're seeing it, seeing it through uh, you know, online purchasing. And I think the last jobs report was very interesting because there was a loss, I don't know what it was, 20,000 jobs in the retail sector. And we're going to see happening in the retail sector the same thing that happened uh, in the manufacturing sector. And so then the question is, what kind of jobs are there going to be anywhere? And those places that do have the jobs are going to do what Amazon does, which is to say, well, you're not really doing anything significant. Uh, you're just doing manual way, you know, just packaging things and sending it out. This is a rather meaningless kind of work. This is what I mean about alienating kind of work. I mean, to imagine you can spend the rest of the time on a manufacturing line and just sort of packaging goods and sending out. I mean, what kind of work is that? So this is uh, so here we have uh, a real transformation in, in labor processes, which I think is going to have a real big impact upon the American economy. The example of deindustrialization and what happened to industrial communities is now going to hit uh, big consumer centers, which which rely upon the retail business. You know, it's it the it's become uh, just a, a an, an assumed and accepted part of American politics that both Democrats and Republicans are evangelists for the idea of the free market uh, being the solution to a, a whole range of problems. What what is your critique? Uh, or problem with the idea that competition is going to give not only consumers but nation states uh, the highest quality product? Well, there are two levels of answer to that. First, I would like to say, what competition? We've got a tremendous amount of monopoly. I mean, look at it in energy, look at it in pharmaceuticals, look at it everywhere, and actually there's a lot of monopoly around. So the competition is kind of fake competition in lots of ways. And, and internationally, of course, there is some sort of level of uh, competition going on between uh, different nation states in terms of, but notice what it does. 
Basically, what you're supposed to do is to create a good business environment. That's what the state is supposed to do. And the better the business environment, the more capital will go to it. So that means lower taxes. Again, the last tax bill was very much about trying to improve the United States as a business environment. So you've got to give actually money to corporations. And that's this astonishing thing. The corporate capital doesn't seem to be able to survive these days without subsidies from the public sector. So in effect, the public is perpetually supporting large corporations uh, and they're not really competing. They're, they're, they're simply using their monopoly power to assemble a great uh, deal of, of, of wealth uh, in few hands. When it comes to electoral politics in the United States, um, what, what do you make of the argument that, I mean, for, first of all, there was a pretty ferocious debate on the left in the United States about the 2016 elections. And I think uh, a, a very significant chunk, even of leftists, uh, ultimately held their noses and voted for Hillary Clinton as a way of sort of voting uh, against Donald Trump. Yeah. What, what, what do you? And Noam Chomsky has also stated that you know only the, the only sane response to the choices given in the 2016 election was, of course, to vote for Hillary Clinton to just prevent the greater evil of uh, of Donald Trump. Where do you come down on these questions when it comes to electoral politics? Well, I think uh, where I come down is to say, well, we've got to organize something which is very different, an alternative on the left. Instead of having what I call, in a sense, the party of Wall Street governing in both parties, uh, one of which is crazier than the other. So I agree with you that if, you, uh, if, if you're faced with putting some, the sorts of things that worry me about Trump is what he's doing with the environment, uh, what he might do on nuclear war, what, all those kinds of things. I mean, he's, he's totally irrational about some of those kinds of things. So, yeah. Yes, I would rather have Hillary in, but I, I don't want to be in a situation in which I say the only answer to somebody like Trump is Hillary, because that, it seems to me, is going back into exactly all those problems that we hit with the first Clinton administration, which was the beginning of this process of the selling out of US government uh, to the bondholders and Wall Street. So we've got to find something which is a non-Wall Street uh, kind of uh, party. And, and that has to be populist at the base, but it also has to, I think, uh, try to revitalize the union power and has to revitalize community power and, and has to bypass a lot of the organizations which are currently there trying to cope with the situation. I mean, I think there's a big problem in this country of, of uh, social welfare through NGOs. Uh, I think the NGOs are a problem. Uh, they're not a solution to 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 add to the difficulties, and we've got to have a real solid good left movement, uh, which uh, you began to see elements of that crystallizing around uh, Bernie Sanders and, and and the like. But we need to go further than that, I think, which is why it's so important to start to have an alternative analysis to the ones which 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 we're generally uh, 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 exposed to on cable news and all the rest of it. Do do you Bernie Sanders identifies himself as a uh, as a democratic socialist yeah. and yet uh, his voting record indicates that he supported regime change in Iraq. Uh, he said he would continue the drone assassination program as yes. it existed under right. Obama. Right. Uh, he's voted for neoliberal economic policies in the past. Um, what what form of socialist would you describe Bernie Sanders as? I mean, is he a Marxist in your view? No, he's a no, no, he's not a Marxist at all. He's, uh, as you say, kind of a social democrats. But social democrats have a rather long history of being rather warlike about all kinds of things and believing in things like military humanism and 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 those sorts of issues. So I, I, I you know, the, the history of social democracy is rather 
uh, a bit tainted by by all of that. And so I think that there has to be a genuinely left socialist movement. And I think that Sanders, the more he got into sort of talking to the millennials, I think his rhetoric began to shift <laughs> away from social demo democracy to a more a more socialist line. So talking about a single payer system and talking about free access to higher education, and we see the same thing emerging in Britain with Jeremy Corbyn uh, beginning to talk uh, more in terms of those traditional socialist views rather than the social social democratic uh, alternative. What's your assessment of the current uh, state of the Democratic Party? I think it's uh, um, actually still controlled by uh, what I would call the party of Wall Street elements. Uh, I mean, somebody like Chuck Schumer, for example, uh, he's raised more money off Wall Street than almost anybody else in Congress. So, uh, I mean, while I, you know, rhetorically he can say some certain things, I think that he's very much uh, part of that, and Nancy Pelosi also. So, I, I, I think the, the 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 leadership and the power structure within the Democratic Party is antagonistic somewhat to a kind of real socialist uh, push. And my nervousness is that. Uh, they will simply have to say, oh, well, they're the alternative to the crazy man Trump and they will get into power. But that's not going to make any real difference. Uh, it's going to actually uh, exacerbate the, the, the problems as I see it. I don't see them taking on the kind of question of, say, student debt and, and I don't see them taking on single payer and things of that kind of questions at all. Now, you, you, you talk about the need to build a left socialist movement in the United States. Uh, and I'm I'm curious. You know, you 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 have had a um, a, a growing of the ranks of uh, of the Democratic Socialists of America. A lot of young yes. people joining it. They um, have been running candidates in local races. That one of their candidates won a um, a seat in the Virginia House of Delegates. A, a young guy named Lee Carter, who we had um, on this show. Uh, would the primary uh, purpose of that be to? Compete in the electoral system, or or are you talking about a, a more worker-oriented uh, movement that's not in, not overwhelmingly concerned with electoral politics? Yeah, I don't. Uh, as, as you probably know, I don't. I don't subscribe to a very workerist view of these things. I think there has to be some alliance between the traditional worker union type of movement and community activists. Uh, movements and environmental movements and, and the like, and that uh, building alliances uh, between uh, different groups is terribly important. I think that uh, uh, acknowledging the significance of the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, some of the gender movements that are around, that these are, I think, uh, very significant elements that need to be put together into a kind of a coalition. I personally find that that uh, the millennials, if you like to call them that, the younger generation is much more open uh, to discuss these things than uh, than anybody over 30, 35, you know. And I, I say to my daughter sometimes, and one of the things you should do, be very progressive, is to prevent my generation from having, from having a vote, <laughs> you know, because, <laughs> because we're so reactionary uh, by, by and large. But I think the younger generation... Uh, Where which, would you cut off the voting age? Once you hit, what know. age do you not vote anymore? I don't anymore? know. I, 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 I support that for driving, by the way. Yeah. I think there should be a maximum age limit for driving. Yeah, well, I'm probably past that, <laughs> so I, I personally am not going to benefit from that. But... Uh, I, I I don't know exactly what the age is, but but 
I, I find there is a, a, a group in power, in, in academia, for example, I think it's the academics who are between 40 and 60 who are kind of hold the power right now, and they're a real problem. Uh, I think they've, you know, they, they've, they've accepted the neoliberal kind of mantra and they've got neoliberal attitudes. And uh, so it's, it's, it's people under that age who I think are beginning to sort of ask big questions. I'm so glad that you you brought up uh, neoliberal ideas. The the term neoliberal is thrown around so much these days by people that I think have literally no clue uh, what neoliberal economic policy is or neoliberalism is in general. I think it would be fantastic. Give people a definition. What what does neoliberalism mean? I took it to be a political project which originated in the 1970s with the Business Roundtable and the Rockefellers and everybody else, uh, which is to reorganize the economy in such a way as to restore power to an ailing capitalist class. The capitalist class was in difficulties in the late 1960s, early 1970s, because the worker movement was rather strong. There were a lot of community activists, the environmental, all these reform things coming through, the formation of the EPA and all those kinds of things. So they decided uh, through the business roundtable that they were going to really try to recuperate uh, and accumulate uh, as much economic power as they could amongst themselves. And that uh, had a number of, uh, of, of, of elements uh, to it, uh, such that, uh, for example, if you were faced with a situation of bailing out the people or bailing out the banks, you would bail out the banks and let the people struggle. Uh, you would always say if there's a conflict between capital and the well-being of the people, you'll choose capital. That was the simple, simple form of the project. There were elements of that that you know Reagan set in motion and Thatcher set in motion, and, and that's basically what it's been about. It was a political project. Now, some people say it's just an idea about the free market. Well, yeah, a free market to some personal responsibility, yeah, a redefinition of citizenship such that a good citizen is not a needy citizen. So any citizen who's needy is a bad person. And, and I don't know if you've seen the movie I, Daniel Blake. It's a very good have, example. Yeah. It's a terrifying example of how the social services get set up to punish people as opposed to really assist them and help them. Well, and what, what I often uh, think of as, as one of the uh, most visible aspects of neoliberal economic policy uh, is the, the notion of austerity measures that yes. are imposed yes. on, uh, on, on economies in the global south, uh, but also in the case of Greece, for instance. Yes. Um, uh, you, you see this demand from the creditors uh, that uh, the first thing that has to go uh, if we're to give you this debt is your social programs. And the yes. money that you would normally spend on those is going to go toward paying off either the principal or the interest on the money right. that is being generously right. lent to right. you. Is right. that, that Well, it's the debt peonage again. You know, you organize debt peonage in such a way as to lock people in, and then they have to pay. Uh, but uh, you don't uh, take the money away from the bondholders. I mean, in the case of Greece, for example, it wasn't as if anybody went after the French and the German banks who'd lent all that money to Greece. They, they kind of basically socialized their debt turn it into the IMF and the European Stability Fund and, and, and all the rest of it, and then made the Greeks pay. Well, actually, if uh, the banks made a bad uh, judgment, they should pay. Uh, but they didn't. 
and this is this neoliberal principle at work. And I, I tend not to like the term austerity because austerity... I'm only, using the term that they, uh, yes, that yes, they use. Yes, they yeah. use. But austerity is used uh, for that policies which are administered to the population. Austerity right. is not for capital. Right. right. <laughs> Absolutely not for the financial institutions. And it's not for the top 1%. So, so austerity is about social programs. And in fact, the state has been heavily, heavily involved in subsidizing capital uh, over the last 10 or 15 years. So that state power is used that way. So this, again, was part of the neoliberal uh, kind of mix. And it preaches free market, uh, but it's that's basically the ideology. As I've said earlier, uh, there's a tremendous amount of monopoly power in this supposedly free market system. Well, you know, it's it's. Uh, I, I've I've often thought that at least in part, uh, the uh, situation that we saw unfold in Greece is very similar in some ways to what happened in the financial crisis in this country in 2007, 2008. You had these. Uh, lenders that knew uh, that the people they were giving the money to uh, were not going to be able to afford their monthly payments, not to mention even making principal loan payments. Right. And in Greece, it was the same thing. These German uh, and, and to a lesser extent, other European financial uh, institutions, they knew that the money that they were giving uh, or that they were lending uh, right. to Greece was not going to be repaid and that it would ultimately come to a head. So why why do these institute why do German banks uh, or US financial institutions what benefits them to uh, pour money into uh, in, in, into Greece knowing that it's not going to be uh, paid back? Well, or because, other countries because or because, because they know it will be paid back to them by by the state. Uh, by, you know, and in fact, uh, the German state will do it, but the German state will do it by actually leaning upon the Greeks and reducing their living standards. But this has been going on since way, way back. Uh, I mean, look at something like Mexico in 1982, couldn't pay its debt. The International Monetary Fund said, OK, we'll help you out, but you've got to do this and this and this. And actually, they reduced the living standards of people in Mexico by about 25% in the next five years. That was what helped pay off the debt. Now, that's what, it's, that's what austerity is about. And, and in fact, the IMF has administered austerity, budget, that sort of thing, everywhere. So the banks never get hurt. And it goes back, actually, to the New York fiscal crisis back in 1975 when, when there was a choice between actually bailing out the banks or making the citizens of New York City pay. So the citizens of New York City paid and the banks didn't bear any of the cost of what, what they had done. So this is this is what the neoliberal order is about. What you know, uh, yeah, they call it moral hazard, by the way, which means that you're not really you're not really going to be caught by any bad decision you make. When politicians, primarily Republicans, but also Democrats, talk about, oh, we need to we need to reduce our debt, uh, and we and we need to balance our our checkbook in this country. What are the politics of that? When you have these, when you have politicians campaigning. In part, on this idea that they're they're going to reduce the uh, the debt or eliminate the debt of the U.S. federal government, what are what are, what are they really talking about? Well, but, you know, this is a this is a, a, a sort of a, a baseball bat which is taken to politics uh, periodically. Uh, remember uh, Dick Cheney saying that Ronald Reagan taught us that debt doesn't matter because Reagan went into debt like crazy, um, mainly on the military side. And and uh, you know Bush also you know was 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 going into debt, 
Uh, then the Republicans turn around when Obama comes in and says we've got to do something about the debt, and that becomes the excuse uh, to stop uh, any kind of programs going through. So the question of the debt, and we see now the Republicans are back into power. What do they do? They increase the debt by, I don't know, $1.5 trillion or something like that. They don't, I, I, don't, I don't think there's a, there's a real issue here. What is simply is a political excuse to raise a rhetoric about indebtedness, and we've got to deal with the debt on our children. But then, of course, it's turned around, and, uh, and like this last uh, tax bill, uh, nobody cares about it when, when in fact, they've been bleating on about the debt for, for ages and ages before that. But it's a political tool which you use in this particular way in a particular historical moment. Who owns the the, debt, the U.S. debt? Uh, oh, well, it's interesting that, uh, of course, China owns a great deal of it. Um, and uh, actually, Russia owns quite a bit. Uh, uh, you know, Japan owns quite a bit. And in fact, there's a very interesting story about that, if you want to know. When in, in the middle of the crisis, when uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and AIG were all kind of going in, the Russians uh, went to the Chinese and said to the Chinese, let's sell all our debt in those institutions and that will crash the U.S. economy. And it would have done because actually the, the, the holders of the debt of those institutions were primarily China and Russia. China refused for a very simple reason. It didn't want the US economy to crash because it's a main consumer market. But if Russia and China had decided at that moment to sell all of their, their holdings in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and AIG, the, the US economy would have gone down. Is, is there anything uh, in China that you would still describe as, uh, or if you ever, uh, communist in nature? I think that the Chinese situation is a very kind of complicated one. And the, For but, sure, but, yeah. well, one, but one, one that I'm, I've gone up and down about, about this. But, for instance, Xi has decided he's going to eliminate rural poverty in two years. And there's a massive, massive program going on in China right now. Uh, and, of course, when the Chinese decide to do something like that, they really do it. Uh, I mean, when they decided to build a high-speed rail network, they had zero miles of it in, uh, in, in, in sort of 2007. They've now got 15 or 20,000 miles of it, and they just, just went ahead and did it. Well, but, but in, in, in fairness, you know, the, the, there is very little regulation in China oh, for I, these kinds of construction projects. Yes, yeah, so. there's, no, there's no regulation. Yeah. There's no private property rights in your way. You can do what you like. You know, I mean, uh, yeah, it's dictatorial in that kind of way. So I'm not, I'm not saying this is a good system. But it's interesting that uh, she has decided to eradicate rural poverty in two years. Uh, now, you know, me, people may go on about that in the West, but I don't see, I mean, c can you imagine a program in this country that says it was going to eradicate homelessness in, in two years? Oh, I don't see it. I mean, everybody goes on about affordable housing, something's got to be done, but nothing actually really gets done. She is going to do it. And, and I think that th this is the difference uh, that, that is there. So there's some very positive things, I think, that come out of the China thing, as well as uh, all the negatives, which, of course, we hear uh, all of the time, you know, lack of freedom of choice and, 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 and you know, not, it's very authoritarian. Uh, party power is being used in certain kinds of ways, and people will talk about all those sorts of things in the West. But what we're not looking at is the phenomenal transformation that's going on economically and in terms of even of people's lifestyles. 
I mean, if you said to people, do you want to go back to the kind of world that was there in, say, uh, 1978 or something like that, the answer would be absolutely not. Uh, that many people there have, have, have got a much better life now than, than, than was the case uh, back then. So I think that China is something which we ought to be looking at with a, with a critical eye, but nevertheless, not this kind of preachy kind of, oh, it's not like, you know, and there's, a, there's a, uh, no concern about human rights as if somehow or other there's a great concern on the ground for human rights in this country. You know, with the discussion um, around Trump and collusion and uh, collusion and uh, Russia, I, I find it interesting. The kind, I don't even know if, if red baiting is the is the right term, uh, but if I see one more asinine cable news host put a backwards R in in Trump, you know, instead of T R U M P, it's T backwards R, which isn't even the letter R in the uh, Russian alphabet. The, the idea that the Soviet Union is still there, that Russia is communist, and that um, Putin is is uh, is still this kind of epitome of a Cold War commie, and he's, he's you know was in the KGB for so long. Is there any nugget of truth whatsoever to the idea that uh, that Russia still uh, has any links uh, to to what it once was as the Soviet Union, or? I mean, because it seems to me like Putin is a very kind of sophisticated gangster running a, yeah. a, uh, a, a. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Very capitalist institution in, in the Russian state. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on uh, on all of this, but I, I don't see anything particularly redemptive about what, what Putin is doing, and I, I don't think it has anything to do with socialism or there's even a residual concern about any kind of socialist values. Whereas in the China case, I do see some concern uh, about those sorts of issues, and uh, they are shifting, for example, to look at environmental questions and uh, taking the lead now in renewable energies and things of that sort. So uh, the China case is, I think, uh, um, a, a complicated one because uh, because it does have a number of features which are redemptive as a, at the same time as you recognize that, that there are many features of that society which I, I personally would not really want to live with. What what would it um, what would it look like if we were to uh, radically reorganize U.S. society um, under 
a philosophy or an ideology rooted in Marxism uh, or that the social good was actually a, a priority in this country rather than sort of everyone fend for themselves. What, what, what would that mean in a country as big and as populated as, as the United States? I think, I think uh, um, if I put it so, sort of uh, crudely, I, I, I think the future of the U.S., insofar as it has a radical future, uh, lies more with some sort of what I would call almost non-ideological anarchism. I don't think that uh, it's ready for the kind of collective endeavor that would really be required uh, to confront uh, the power of uh, the Federal Reserve and find an alternative. Uh, I don't think it's ready for thinking about uh, mass a mass movement of some kind that will actually uh, start to, to redefine uh, you know, how the economy, economy works. I think if there's going to be any real kind of uh, left, it's going to be a kind of socialist, anarchist kind of left politics that will emerge, which has you know some many redeeming features. I'm, you know, coming out of the Marxist history, we're supposed to be very hostile to anarchism, but I, I we have a great deal of appreciation for uh, the anarchist tradition. And uh, I actually find uh, that with my own work that it often gets uh, taken up by by anarchists. So I'm not. I, I think there's a. I think there's a there's a there's an ideological area of overlap there that that has uh, something which would be distinctive uh, to U.S. history and culture. Uh, and I think we have to recognize the significance and importance of that history. Do you, do you have a sense that uh, that that kind of a radical shift that the, for the United States to have enough people uh, to fundamentally change the way that the state functions, or maybe an entirely different state would be uh, built up? There's no there's no plausible path to that short of a complete collapse of the capitalist. Um, state in the United States. Am I wrong? Well, no. I, th I think that uh, one of the things that, that uh, is going on, on to some degree on the left is the attempt to redefine uh, forms of government, governmental power, if you want to call it that, which are alternative to the existing state structures. And uh, to some degree, I see the, the activism that's going on at the municipal level as an interesting kind of uh, way to start to explore uh, what those alternative structures might uh, might look like. Uh, can we uh, create democratic forms of municipal governance, for example? Uh, if so, what you know, what kind of institutional structures would 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 work so that people become involved, become unalienated, as opposed to alienated entirely from the the, the rather corrupt structures of uh, government that we now have. So I, I think there's, uh, there, uh, there would need to be already in place the capacity of, uh, of people to organize themselves into alternative structures of collective governance, uh, which are outside of the conventional forms of the state apparatus. What what um, uh, what states throughout history would you point to as um, most embodying uh, a socially just structure? I think that uh, we've seen um, various uh, experiments with forms of governance which are collective. I mean, we 
often many people on the left will talk about the Zapatista movement, for example. But I think you would see in uh, places like Kerala or Bhutan sort of possibilities of a government structure that is very, very different. I mean, Kerala is a very poor state, but on the other hand, it has a very high literacy rate. Healthcare is very good. Uh, well, and, and a very rich uh, uh, radical left tradition. Radical left tradition. Um, I actually think that uh, we should be able to talk a little bit more about Cuba. Uh, there are all kinds of problems in Cuba, and, and, and but you know I don't think we should write it off. Their healthcare system is is remarkable. Uh, the story of what the Cuban doctors have done globally has been absolutely astonishing. Um, again, I think that we you know we, we have to cherry pick, if you like, from different historical. Uh, uh, situations to figure out things that did work. And I, and I don't think everything that happened in the Soviet Union was negative, for example. But after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, many things that were, you know, actually very positive for the, for the population disappeared. And I think that, again, we have to look back and find out what were those things that were very very positive and can they be reconstructed? Well, I, I've spent a fair bit of, uh, of time in, in Cuba myself and was there in the mid-90s uh, also when Cuba was going through what Castro called uh, the special period when the dollar was being uh, reintroduced into uh, Cuban yeah. society and the Cubans were facing the realities of what it meant for the Soviet Union to no longer exist in the form that it had in the decades that uh, Cuba was one of its close allies in the Western Hemisphere. Um, and I remember uh, watching a speech that Castro gave in which he was talking about – he was lambasting a report by Human Rights Watch, the, the U.S.-based human rights organization, which uh, often does do the kind of ideological bidding of the U.S. government in the way that it applies its filter to different uh, societies versus the United States, um, although less less so now than it was before. And, and Castro said you know, that there's essentially – a, a, a quote-unquote Western, uh, meaning like white Anglo states, view of human rights. Uh, and then there is a, uh, a, a different version of what it means to have human rights in countries like ours, in Cuba. And he basically was saying, you know, in the West, they, 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 they cherish uh, freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and, uh, and, and these things that are sort of of the mind. And uh, here we would list as as human rights, housing, education, healthcare, et cetera. Does that absolve Castro of the need to, I mean, obviously he's no longer with us, but uh, to, to uh, embrace the idea that freedom of assembly and freedom of speech are uh, in fact somehow inherently human rights that we all are entitled to just because they're giving people affordable or free healthcare, affordable or free education, affordable or free housing? I mean, is, is he correct in saying, well, these are two different views of what the priorities are in human rights? Well, I, I don't think it's a question of whether he's correct or not. I think that that was the path that uh, Cuba chose. And, yeah, personally, I, I, you know, I, I would like to see much more in the way of freedom of expression and, and, and the like. Freedom of assembly, I don't know if we have freedom of assembly in this country. Well, I wasn't co-signing it and saying, I'm saying that th <laughs> right. that's what's projected. But, but, these are the, yes, these are right. the definitions of freedom, when right. you can assemble, yes. when you can speak. Right. And in Cuba, it's, it's yeah, but what if you have no health care, no housing? Right, uh, yes, know, so, right. Yeah. No, I, I, I think those, those elements should be human rights. I, I tend to say that one of the, the strategies for a socialist program right now would be to decommodify as much as possible, basic uh, human needs, 
which would include, uh, of course, obviously healthcare and education. I think it's appalling that we have to pay for education. I got my PhD on free uh, in Britain way, way back. And, and I think that should be open to, to, to everybody. So I, I, I think there are areas of that sort, and I would, I would simply say that uh, health care should not be a commodity, and you shouldn't be rationed in terms of your health care, in terms of your income. You should not be rationed uh, in your access to education. Uh, I think that housing is a case, an area, and I think that actually basic food supply uh, also should be a, a human right. And Cuba tried to implement uh, things on, on that, and I know that in certain parts, uh, even in places, uh, uh, certain municipalities in Brazil, they, they, they've sort of set up some free uh, food supply for low-income populations. And in a funny sort of way, we have it through the volunteer sector right now, uh, which is, you know, the food... Uh, and, and the soup kitchens and things like that. Right, Reagan it. once bragged that the number of soup kitchens uh, had had, had uh, exponentially grown under his administration. Yes, well, that's <laughs> what's a crazy thing to brag about. Right. I mean, but uh, I think that basic uh, basic needs should be met, and 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 so I think that a socialist program would be one where where that would be the case. You know, it's 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 interesting because when you uh, and and this comes up more and more now in our discourse for a variety of reasons, but. You know, people will point to uh, the, the you know what's sort of called the, the crimes of communism that you know thirty million plus people under Stalin right, and the brutality right, of, right, uh, right. of 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 Mao and and Castro's uh, suppression of dissent and the jailing of dissenters and Che Guevara supporting the firing squads at the beginning of the Cuban Revolution, and you know there, there's there's a whole uh, bucket of heinousness in 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 you know each of the the episodes that I just described. That's well known and talked about all the time, but they're categorized as the crimes of communism, and yet we never talk about the crimes of capitalism. I mean, you you do, but I mean, in our society, it's like Reagan isn't viewed through the lens of the crimes of capitalism. You know, Bush and Cheney killing a million plus people with their wars—that's not the crimes of capitalism. Clinton imposing the most uh, harsh regime of economic sanctions in world history on the people of Iraq. Those aren't the crimes of capitalism. Should they be labeled in that way? Oh, absolutely. And I think right now, when we even internally, we should be looking at something like the opioid thing. I mean, we have declining life expectancy in many areas of the United States right now. And actually, Cameron, when he resigned, was the first prime minister to uh, uh, in, a, in a country where the life expectancy was less when he resigned than when he when he took office. So declining life expectancy, just to give you an example, is, is, is an indicator of something that's going on in society, which is close to criminal kind of activity. When I saw, I mentioned uh, I, I, William Blake, I, uh, Daniel Blake, um, I, 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 I thought this is, a, this is a criminal activity that's going on here and should be called out as criminal activity. And Marx, actually, in Capital, is always talking about well, you know, what goes on in the workplace, uh, you know, in his time, of course, it was kids down the mines and so on, is, 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 is violence, and it's violence against humanity in a way that should be actually called out as, as, as violence. So, yeah, we have to look at uh, all of those elements. And, and when we look at those elements, we see, you know, there are countervailing issues. I mean, 
people quite rightly talk about, for instance, the Great Famine in China, which came out of very bad policy decisions and, and, and many million people died. But what we don't talk about is the fact that when Mao came to power, life expectancy in China was something like 35. When he died, life expectancy in China was 65. So this is a, this is a real transformation in society where, where, where I think that we recognize that a particular political regime has made some good things and some bad things. And I think actually, again, the way the Chinese handle this is, 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 in, is, is interesting. They basically said, well, you know, Mao was, was, was a genius, and, but he made mistakes. And, 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 and we recognize those mistakes. But on the other hand, he did something that was absolutely phenomenal. What... Um what is the role of uh, of prisons or jails in in um, in society? Or what? Rather, let me rephrase that. How do you think society should respond to crime, including very serious crime, murder and rape? I think uh, one of the things again that that uh, uh, we have to do is to is to look in in, in two directions. One. Uh, the kind of incarceration politics that has grown up uh, under the neoliberal order, uh, in a way, is of storing people in jails and and so on. It's dealing with a particularly recalcitrant group in the population uh, by incarceration, and I I I, I find that politics uh, unacceptable. Uh, on the other hand, when there's violence and pathological violence, we have to go try to go to the root of it. And we see some of these things and ask, uh, have to ask questions of where it's coming from. Again, I, I think uh, there are issues about alienation which are involved here. And, and we need a society that is much more uh, empathetic to uh, the situations. But yes, of course, if somebody is engaging in pathological criminal activity, uh, there have to be ways of, uh, of, of, of isolating them from and protecting society from, uh, from their actions. So I'm not against uh, uh, incarceration to some degree, but there's punitive incarceration and then there's remedi remedial uh, incarceration. Who does it right in the world, do you think, deals with the inevitab inevitability of, of uh, criminal actions, including violent ones that represent an actual threat to Ordinary people. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I, I've not done enough studies of the criminal justice system to give a good answer to that. Uh, do you have a sense of? Uh, I mean, this may sound like a strange question. Um, is there a, a a city in the world that you think of as the most capitalist city on earth? Most capitalist city on earth. There's a lot of cities that are extremely capitalist. Well, in your book, you 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 know you you you, you, you sort of name a few. You you talk about London and Shanghai and uh, and New York yes, because of Wall right, Street and the right, huge financial concentration. Right. But is there, are they all sort of just on a on a same on a similar level, or are there? No, some I, more than I, others? I you know I mean of course the 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 traditional. Uh, uh, industrial town with you know the cotton manufacturing centers of the 19th century or something like that were you know, purely capitalist the kind of things that Engels describes in the condition of the working class in England in 1844 you know those those sorts of things are, are descriptions of uh, industrial capitalist city but then we've got the consumerist capitalist city, and then we've got the financial capitalist city that has a rather different kind of uh, tone to it. So I think there are different kinds of uh, capitalist city. And uh, as I'm very much into these days is to talk about the city as a, a sink for surplus capital. So people you know, actually build cities to absorb surplus capital. 
And, uh, you know, the Chinese have done some of this uh, big time. Uh, but then if you look at uh, Spain before the crash, you find actually a lot of you know, provincial centers were building monumental public works for no good reason whatsoever, except the fact that there was a surplus capital around it needed something to do. And so they kind of said, OK, we'll do that. And then, of course, all of that came crashing, crashing down. But uh, if you look at uh, what's going on in terms of urbanization worldwide, uh, what you see is a tremendous kind of uh, ecological transformation. Uh, I mean, I'm impressed in, in cities like, in countries like Turkey, you drive around in small towns, massive building projects around, many of them not inhabited, and you wonder what on earth is going on. Even in Palestine, I, 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 I saw uh, the same sort of thing going on around uh, Ramallah, a kind of uh, uh, taking your surplus capital and saying, what are we going to do with it? Well, we'll build a condominium or we'll build a, you know, and of course we see that going on in New York, we see it going on. Uh, in many parts, in many parts of the world, this is almost a universal process, right? Well, now. Well, and there's a, there's a huge uh, money laundering operation. Oh, absolutely, uh, that, that's occurring. I mean, London now is basically finished. You have uh, you know people from outside the country purchasing expensive real estate as a way of kind of parking their their yes. money. Yes, right. No, I mean this is this is uh, uh, this is going on everywhere. We don't. I mean, one of the lines I can't think of, we don't build cities now for people to live in. We build them for people to invest in. And, and the investors don't necessarily have a really care about the quality of life in the city. And that's one of the negative things. But how do you realistically change this or stop this behemoth? It's why I asked you earlier, like, short of like a complete collapse of, of the American economy, how, how will... How do you even make a dent in this? Well, I think this is likely to be uh, uh, quite a significant uh, withdrawal on the of finance at a certain point. And there's going to be a lot of bankruptcies which are attached to that. And I think that some of the things that are going to happen uh, are going to move in a rather different direction. But the trouble is... What do you mean? Well, um, I mean, just to take New York. I mean, the quality of life in New York has been declining very radically because rents have been rising very rapidly. And small family restaurants and coffee shops and so on are going under and being replaced by chains. So now... You know, what used to be a kind of neighborhood life was being destroyed by, uh, you know, the big chains coming in and, 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 and bank branches. And who wants to live on a street which is four bank branches and, 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 and five chains, you know? I mean, so there's a, there's a, there's a real deterioration in, in the daily quality of life uh, in the city, which leads to that sort of alienation that I mentioned at the very beginning. And, and I think that if that all breaks down, then the question arises, how, how, how are those empty stores, because there's going to be empty stores or bank branches which just can't you know, pay for themselves anymore, what, what's going to happen to all of that real estate and how is it going to be occupied and by whom will it be occupied? And, and that, I think, is then going to be one of the big questions. Will you find sort of, uh, uh, say, communities of artists coming in and taking up a vacant space back in the cities? You know, a bit like it happened uh, in the 1970s when you had a very negative you know, property market in a, city, in a city like New York where a lot of artist communities were forming and it was a very vibrant sort of place. Uh, to live and uh, people get nostalgic for sort of 
the, the the sort of 1970s as a, and I and I think that can that be created recreate will that come back again something like that I I don't I don't know what the future can be um, who's going to occupy all of these sort of condos which are being built around which are for the very affluent and which nobody is going to be investing in anymore well y- yes and and um, at the same time I mean we we are a country. Uh, filled with guns, and yes. um, and many of the people who have stockpiled the most weapons are uh, are certainly not going to be reading your books. No, and, uh, well, and you I never mean, know. I, you never know. By maybe the way. All right, okay. Yeah. Maybe maybe there's some like you know yeah. radical socialist cells out there that have uh, have have gone about and armed right. themselves. Right. But I mean, I think you get the point that I'm making. That yeah. it's. Um, you know, my fear, if there is some uh, sort of dystopic future on the on the horizon. That the the poor are going to get just mowed down in this country, or those well, who try already, to reorganize. They already are being mowed down. I mean, that's uh, that, uh, that's been going on steadily over the last you know twenty or thirty years. It's a steady degradation. It's not sort of uh, you know uh, kind of a, uh, a single event. It's it's a steady de- degradation of yes. uh, their living circumstances. I don't uh, think many people th- think think about. Uh, I mean, yes, you're uh, undoubtedly that's that's. I mean, true. there are more homeless people now than ever before. Uh, why did that happen when we've had building booms in all these places, like you know, San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, and everywhere else, and and even in in, in cities like Baltimore and so on? Why why is there the, the, this increase in, in? I mean, there's the production of homelessness, and we're not looking at the root of how homelessness gets produced. And and yes, they're being mowed down. But the mo- people who are mowed down very often feel totally disempowered. They are the the ultimately alienated. But uh, at a certain point, uh, you know, you have to go back to Brechtian drama to see, you know, what happens when when the beggars finally come in and say, okay, we're we're into, you know, real transformations. Right. And and but I I would uh, and I I found the the um, when when you address in uh, in the new book um, the the relationship between. Uh, the institution of the military and the rest of the economies, uh, the rest of the economy in in nation states, it 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 takes you into a completely different realm of uh, of uh, um, uh, alienation. Yes. Um, however, uh, the the technology that exists right now in the world is such that the uh, the world could easily be destroyed many yes. times over yeah. um, by single actors. In some cases, the United yeah. States, uh, Russia, China. Could instantaneously destroy right. the the world. Right. Um, the guns and the caliber of weapons that people have in this country are are uh, much more fierce than ever before in yeah. history, and 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 I'm not even sure that Marx uh, or or anyone uh, from from that era would have been able to imagine uh, the level of destruction that could be caused by one individual person with these weapons. Does that factor into how you think about? the future and the possibilities of rebellion or transformation in society, just the sheer level of destruction that could be uh, wrought by very small groups of people. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't Do you understand think, what I'm saying? Yes, no, I understand. People are obsessed with dystopic no, novels and no, everything, no. but it's like, no, uh, I, this guy who killed all these people in, in, uh, in Las Vegas, I mean, yeah. the, the amount of firepower right. that that individual had, yes. not just in his hotel room, but also in other properties, I mean, it's, 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 un, it's like- Two hundred years ago, it would be unthinkable that 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 yes. one person could hold that kind of 
uh, power I, in their hands. I, I agree, and I think that politics really has to take account of that. I mean, there's no such thing. I mean, what happened in the American Revolution couldn't happen today. Right. What happened in the French Revolution couldn't happen today. What happened uh, in, uh, you know, in 1917 in Russia couldn't happen today. I mean, the thing that struck me about uh, uh, Ferguson was, was the sight of those militarized police taking and going down. I mean, I mean, there's no way, it seems to me, that a political movement can imagine taking to the streets and storming the barricades and, 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 and getting anywhere. They would simply be mowed down. And, and so therefore, politics has to start to think about a, a kind of progressive transformation, which does not involve uh, confrontation and violence of that sort, because Simply, it's quite simple. Uh, I think uh, any movement of that sort would lose, uh, and and therefore we have to think of something that uh, is an alternative kind kind of movement. The difficulty is that that uh, movements which are, uh, say, attempting to construct some kind of alternative will get criminalized. And so we see the criminalization of environmentalists. We see the criminalized as, as we saw in the Dakota pipeline kind of thing, you, you criminalize uh, people who are, are engaged in protest. And then, of course, you have the right to go in and kill them if necessary. So this is, a, this is, this is, this is if you like, the problem on the left. So the left has to think of an alternative strategy and not have dreams of uh, the Russian Revolution or the American Revolution or anything of that kind because right now it's not so much that there's one person got a finger on a button. I mean, if, yeah, if, 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 if Trump pushes the button, then... Yeah, well, we're not going to be able to talk about anything. It's a very big button. Uh, yes, right. Much yes, bigger than your button. Yeah, right. Let me so, tell you. So, so I, I, so that's not what worries me so much. But what worries me about is the militarization of social control, and and the intense militarization and the super militarization of it. So that even something like Occupy, which was a fairly innocent kind of affair in some ways, got treated as a almost semi-criminal, well, not semi, but a criminal organization, which had to be smashed. And, and so that even something as, uh, as elemental as that, it seems to me, is not going to really be able to do very much. Well, and this, this prosecution that's still ongoing of right. batches of people uh, right. stemming from the J-20 protests at Trump's inauguration, where yes. they, they were going to put people who the prosecutors themselves acknowledge played no role in any destruction of any property, right. uh, they, they, were, they were threatened with the possibility of decades Right. Uh, in prison right. now. Fortunately, they the first batch was acquitted, but we don't know what's going to happen with right. the right. Uh, the rest of them. Uh, it's it bears out what you're saying. I mean, this the state is uh, intensely criminalizing dissent with higher and higher stakes right. for those right. who participate in it, right. even indirectly. No, so this is one of the big issues for the left to think about. I mean, because we, we will get criminalized the closer we get to actually. Uh, doing something about the real centers of uh, political and economic power in society, I think that we will be treated as criminals. Well, you know, I want to ask you, but some, something that I've I've said when I've had debates with people who who say, you know, oh, there's going to be a coup in the United States, uh, that the military ultimately is going to take over, or uh, that they're going to build these FEMA camps, uh, etc. And I, I've often argued with people, including from my own world on the left, and said, you know, what the state doesn't need to do any of that. They, they don't need to build a camp to put you. They're already winning. There, there's, there, there has been a kind of silent coup. It's like the line in, um, in the Usual Suspects, the, the Kevin Spacey film. Uh, you know, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. In a way, I sort of feel like 
That's capitalism in this country. The idea that people think that it requires a finite group of fat white men smoking cigars coming up with a way to lock up all of the dissenters because of their thoughts, that's that's not how that kind of a force operates. It's much more ingrained in every aspect of our life. Yes, and that's why I come back to the notions of debt peonage. One of the ways in which social control is exercised is to pe get people so deeply in debt uh, they cannot imagine anything in their future other than simply living in such a way as to pay off their debt. Uh, and and uh, if you kind of say, what is one of the biggest checks on the radicalism of, say, the millennial generation, it's the huge student debt that, that, that hangs around them. And I think that, uh, you know, cognizant of that, uh, they're not going to rock the boat. Well, yeah. And, and now if you... If you fail to make your payments, then you get reported to a credit agency. Then you're looking at a minimum of seven years uh, of your life, right. basically, uh, uh, where you have to struggle just to get basic services or goods sure. Sure. as a result yeah. of uh, no, no. of not paying back that enormous debt from your college. No, I mean this is this is a. I, I mean I, I I shouldn't say this because I don't, I don't believe it, but it's a kind of almost re return to a feudal order uh, where debt peonage is is uh, the order of the day. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a much more sophisticated form of it, but when you boil it down to it, I think you're probably right that yeah. that is exactly what's yeah. happening. Um, as we as we wrap up, why, why did you uh, why did you write this book right now? Well, I wrote it in part because uh, I think that uh, Marx is not well read and not well understood, and that I thought that uh, to try to give a simple, but not not simplistic, but simple understanding of you know what he was trying to do in the three volumes of capital. I would say it's digestible is the word where you're, yeah, you're able to take I, in a lot of complex and then ideas. and then to kind of say that uh, you know there are some very strong things that come out of this and there's a lot of things that don't come out of it I mean this idea that Marx spoke about everything in the world and understood everything in the world is crazy he had a very limited project but the limited project uh, yields a lot of information I think particularly when you start to look at questions of finance and indebtedness and things of that kind so I, I, I wrote it because, uh, partly because of that. And, but then also, it seemed to me that there was a, such an interesting way in which, armed with uh, those kind of conceptual apparatus, you could start to get an interpretation of what's happening. Uh, why is it that the Chinese did what they did and, uh, after 2007, 2008? And what are the impacts for the rest of the world and what's happening to commodity prices and things of that kind? Again, this doesn't explain everything that's going on in the world at all. But on the other hand, it does say something very significant about the economic uh, order in which we live. What, what about the, um, the commodification of spectacle? Uh, sports and concerts, other things in our society. What's, yes. what's your well? View? I, I, one of one of the things I point to is that uh, capital uh, survives in part by speeding up, and therefore there's going to be a speed up in terms of the you know how th how fast things change. But how do you speed up consumption? Uh, if you're consuming uh, stuff that lasts for you know 50 years, uh, 100 years, like my grandmother's knives and forks, uh, that's one thing. But we consume spectacle instantaneously, so capital is increasingly kind of circulating through the production of spectacle. And uh, I think the dream of Silicon Valley is to give us all a universal basic income so we can sit on a couch and just binge watch on Netflix. <laughs> and, that's, and that would be our life. There was actually <laughs> a, 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 supposedly it was a children's movie. There was a film made on this very subject called Wall-E. Oh, Wall-E, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's it, right. 
I mean, that's that's essentially what you're saying yes, that they right. want. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and then, but the fact is that the 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 Silicon Valley crowd are actually in favor of the universal basic income, which seems like a left project. So the left, some of the left want it, and some of the people now uh, they want it too. You're on Twitter. Yeah. Do you have a, a mobile phone? Uh, yeah, I have a mobile. Do you, do you text with people? No. Oh, I text with people. Okay. Yes. Do you use uh, Facebook? No. Do you use Snapchat? No. Do you know what Snapchat is? Yeah. Okay. I have a sense uh, from the the teenagers that I know in my life are completely different than yes. uh, other generations of teenagers, right. and I'm and I, I I'm just talking narrowly through the lens of how I've seen social media impact day-to-day -day interaction. Yeah. It, it It's noticeably different. It really, and I don't mean to be the grumpy old, well, when I was a young man, we had to walk uphill both right. ways to get to, you know, to and from school. I, I mean, the basic notion of conversing with other people has been, it's like it's been adjusted. It's like the system has an update uh, to it that is really scary because right. we're all attached to these devices. I, I'm on Twitter all the time. It changes the way we think about ourselves about the world? I mean, where, where where do you see all of this headed with how attached we all are now to our so-called smart devices? Because I have to be honest, I when I stop myself to think about it, I get pretty fucking scared about what this means for our future that we're so attached to these devices. How do you see it? I'm scared too, but I have no answer to that big, big question. What would Marx have thought of Twitter and Snapchat? Um, I think he probably would have thought that like any technology it can be used for revolutionary purposes or it can have counter-revolutionary uh, purposes. And, and I think the counter-revolutionary side of it is, uh, and, and we've seen a, a very interesting kind of evolution about this whole internet thing from kind of, uh, this is a radical democratizing instrument to realizing that it's really about social control and and all the rest of it. So I think that uh, there's likely to be a reaction of some kind. Um, I hope there's going to be a reaction of some kind. Uh, and for the first time, um, we start to see this whole kind of question of the addiction of populations to this coming up as being a significant social kind of kind of problem. Oh yeah, there's all all sorts of new diagnoses now for, right. for from video games and social media. Yeah, and 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 I know that a lot of school teachers are being driven crazy by the fact that you know in their classrooms the people are doing this stuff all the time. Right, we're all reachable all the time by and basically anyone who wants to reach right. us, and we can be made to feel like we're the most brilliant people in the world by reading our yeah. Twitter feeds. Someone yeah. like you, who's a public figure with eighty something thousand Twitter followers, I'm sure you have people that are saying you're the greatest thinker uh, you know, alive, and then people who are denouncing you, and you could get the, get it all served up to you while eating your cereal. Yeah, I confess I tend not to read it, so. Uh -huh. I did send you a direct message and you respond to it, so I will give you I will give you points for knowing how to use the, slide into my DMs. <laughs> okay. All right, last question. Um, I don't mean to malign the generation of young people, because I ultimately do agree with you that they have a much more open mind right. uh, than the generation, yes. for instance, when I was you know, yes. 20, in my I 20s. I think the reaction, by the way, to this internet neutrality thing has been really, really interesting. Yeah, fourteen and fifteen years old have been suddenly awoken to the fact that they've got to do something, and there's a huge, huge wave of uh, of uh, activism suddenly emerging out of that.
Yes, although part of it is just basic survival instinct because they're so attached to these yes, devices. No, they, yes, right. No, no. I, I'm, I'm going to sound like the curmudgeon here, and you're going to be the militant supporter of our young people. Um, but but on that on that issue, for young people listening to this right now, what what advice would you give them about how to be better contributors to society and making a world more just? Like what what should young people read, and and what ideas should they explore as they kind of go further and further out into the world to make it better? I think uh, uh, two things. First, uh, while, while you're being on Snapchat and all the rest of it, uh, try and cultivate uh, a circle of uh, very close friends that, that you can have real communication with because uh, there has to be some ground-truthing, as they sometimes say in these words, of, as what all these abstractions which you're getting through the Internet are about. And I think that by having a group, uh, a discussion group or a, a like-minded group of people... You mean in real life? You don't mean like a, uh, yes. like a, no, like a no, chat group? No, no, not okay. a chat group. No, I mean, you know, sitting around a table with none of the devices on and 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 talking and and drinking and whatever you know i mean just 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 so that you have a uh, real human closeness uh, and to can talk about uh, a lot of the issues that you're encountering and i would be very much in favor and i think this has been going on a lot uh, of forming reading groups and I've, I've been very excited by the fact that I have these lectures on reading Marx's Capital, and I find all these reading groups around, you know, eight, ten people sort of get together, and once a week they get together and they talk about, I'm not saying everybody should do Capital, but have reading groups of that kind so that you can discuss ideas and alternatives. Well, and the downloads of uh, of, uh, uh, of that are in the millions. Yes, right. Yeah, no. I mean, I mean, it's you. I mean, that that system has worked extremely well. Which is, which is, uh, you know, there's the lectures on Marx's Capital, and so people will look at the lectures and maybe look at the book, and then they will come in a group and they will talk about, you know, what's being said and what it means and 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 the like. And I get a lot of feedback. You know what did you mean by this? And I don't. I think you're wrong on this. You know. So, so, so it it's been a for me. It's been that's that's been a very successful thing. But I also recognise that when I talk to people who form those reading groups, and and that that they're doing something significantly different from what goes on in terms of. I'm 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 not against uh, all of the, the the new stuff. I mean, I I tend to have a slightly luddite view of some of this, but but. But I, I, I'm all in favor of a lot of it, but there has to be something else going on as well. And, and that something else is something which has to be actively constructed, not, not in opposition to, uh, but in, as a companion to uh, what is going on around them in the Internet. What a great note to end on. Uh, Professor David Harvey, thank you very much for joining us on Intercepted. Well, thank you for this opportunity. It's been great. Thank you. David Harvey is Distinguished Professor of Anthropology and Geography at the City University of New York. He's author of many books. His latest is Marx, Capital, and the Madness of Economic Reason. And that does it for this special bonus episode of Intercepted. If you're not yet a sustaining member of the program, log on to theintercept.com slash join to contribute to this program and keep it going. Just like Sam Sabzazar, 
He's our honorary producer, and we thank you very much for your generous support. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. We're distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack DeZadoro, and our executive producer is Letal Malad. Laura Flynn is associate producer. Elise Swain is our assistant producer and our graphic designer. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.